Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. In today's episode of What About Death, I speak with Annie Whitlock, who explains her role as a death doula and why she believes speaking openly and honestly about dying and death early can bring a peace of mind both during life and as the end of life draws near. So today I'd like to introduce as my guest Annie Whitlock, who is a death doula and an end-of-life advocate from Melbourne here in Australia. Uh, thank you so much, Annie, for joining thank me you, today. Thank you, Sultan. Thank you for asking me. So can you explain to me what exactly is a death no, doula? No, I can't explain exactly because it's so broad, but uh, <laughs> I will try. <laughs> so Excellent. I think people are more familiar with the word doula or birth doula. And uh, it's a non-medical companion training being a service to the parents and the child. So a death doula is similar except we're at the other end of the beginning. And so death doulas can specialise in many different areas such as advanced care directives, advanced care planning, sometimes known as uh, living wills, uh, preparing legal things such as uh, wills, power of attorney, uh, support during specialist uh, doctor's appointments, uh, preparing the person at end of life and their people for the dying time, uh, listening to persons with terminal prognosis, because many times they have not been truly heard. And then we go into bespoke services such as living wakes, personalised funerals, washing the deceased, cooling plates so that the body can stay, the deceased body can stay uh, at home or in a nursing home for as long as the people want that person there. Uh, Being the gatekeeper, sitting vigil, do you get the idea? So it's actually quite an extensive role and uh, one that's actually quite intimate with the person who is coming closer to their end of life. Very intimate, very intimate. So was there a catalyst for you to enter this field? What what drew you to being a death doula? I'm going to revert back to my previous one, so many reasons. I went, I was thinking about this and I'm going back to the earliest time and I can think of, I lived with my grandparents from the age of about three and a half and every birthday I was, uh, there was no birthday party for me because uh, their only son died in the war on the day that I was born, not the year but the the, the same date. So uh, every year on that date the house was in mourning and uh, no birthday parties and uh, over time it was explained to me 
So, you know, I was aware of, of death then. Um, I have had six babies die, miscarriages, and uh, I was not allowed to uh, talk about it. And uh, people in their ignorance, I call it their ignorance, would try to uh, divert uh, the conversation. Don't talk about that. It's, it's, it's not good for you. Um, I was with my uh, my grandfather when he died. He chose to die at home. And um, my mother was on the left side of the bed. I was on the right side. My eight-year-old son was sitting on, on the chair beside. And Grandpa died at home. And he had a really peaceful death. Uh, my husband died uh, after six months of marriage in a car accident. Uh, years later, my fiancé took his life. I went to uh, Sulawesi, Indonesia, Tanataroja, and uh, I visited this, uh, this, uh, these people who actually kept the deceased um, inside the home for many, many years. And I was actually uh, introduced to, to one of them. I, uh, they were I was by myself. I used to do a lot of travel by myself. I could speak Indonesian. And they, the people said to me, would you like to come and meet my mother? And I said, yes, yes, lovely. So they took me into their home and it was on stilts. It was very dark. And they took me down the back of the house and all the family were up the front. And, um, and he pointed, he started talking to his mother in Indonesian and and she was dead. She had been dead for quite some time. And uh, so I, I had no idea what to expect. And I just spoke to her and I said how lovely it was to meet her family and her son. And, um, and then we left. So that was a, a very unusual experience for me. Um, and so many other experiences in death that I realized that people... There are so many ways to to look at death and dying and how we need to talk about it so much. And the the experience with your grandfather, is that your first memory of death or do you have uh, another time that, that you can recall as your first recollection or memory or experience no, of death? No, I was a vet nurse. There were lots of uh, puppies and kittens that people would bring in and ask for them to be euthanized because they didn't want them. Mm. That was my my first, I think that was would be my first experience of actual death and, and crying and the grief and the sadness. And so with all of this, this personal experience of a variety of types of death, I guess, how do you see that that's affected your view or how you see end of life? I guess I just encourage the difficult questions. I don't judge. I say that. And I know that sometimes I do judge, but I don't display it. And I, I don't say that I know what will happen for that particular person at death or after death, I leave that open to the person at end of life to, um, to ruminate on, to massage around. 
understanding grief. There are so many different kinds of grief. People often talk about our elders dying and yet they don't, they probably do understand, but they, they don't really get it that we can die from the beginning of forming in the womb, the from the moment of conception that death can uh, can occur at any time. So how do you think the role of a death doula helps to equip individuals and families to understand dying and death? I like to think that when I meet them, now this can be over the phone, face-to-face, on Zoom, that... first of all to let them know that you're not alone there are people here that are experienced and we can help you so when I say that there are people here because sometimes you can't one death doula cannot be with the person near end of life for the whole time and it's really important for, uh, for example, there was a, a man that I was with a short time ago and he said that I'm really uh, scared of dying alone. He was in palliative care. So I got another mm. two death doulas and we, we basically synced our services to let him know that someone would be there at all times, to let them know that there's no, there's not a lot of rules here. It's like not medical. It's There's no rigid rules and that, you know, messiness and clunkiness and stumbles and fumbles, that's all human and that's okay. People can relax then. Mm. Then I, I let them mm. know of all of the, the possibilities that they can do slowly, slowly. I don't blurt it all out and and drown them in information. Now, you've also had uh, quite a lot of experience with death cafes. So why do people come along and what benefits do you think that they have? John Underwood started the death cafe in 2011 and it was just to open up the subject about death in all its forms. And it's a, a space where people get together and there's no strict agenda it's just about sharing and every group of people we usually like to have maybe seven or eight people and one good trained facilitator and that facilitator holds a sacred space they let the each person have an opportunity to share whatever they want some people don't want to talk they just want to listen some people want to share and there is no, uh, no, no judgment. Some people will want to talk about very sensitive subjects. Uh, some people will want to talk about a personal experience. And so they are given that sacred space to speak their truth. So what do you think attracts people to participate in a death cafe versus why some people might be afraid to participate in a death cafe? Well, obviously curiosity. Uh, A lot of past experiences that they want to talk about and it's not uncommon for these people to say that I can't talk about this with my family. 
I can't even talk mm. about it with my friends and I, I need to, to verbalise it, I need to speak it out. And at a death cafe, they get to do that. So it's a safe space to talk about a, what might be a taboo subject elsewhere. Yes. And do you think, I just also recently spoke with um, Dr. Sarah Winch, who's a great advocate for death literacy, and she was also talking about uh, the importance of death cafes in cultivating death literacy uh, so that people are more comfortable with the language and the experience of dying and death. So what's your view on death literacy and the relationship between death cafes and death, uh, death literacy? Well, every person who comes to a death cafe will speak from using the words that they are comfortable with. Um, when mm. I have been a facilitator or uh, when I've presented the, the death cafes, I always say that this is the language that I will use. I will use the word death and dying and just to let them know that if they feel uncomfortable, uh, that's okay, but I will actually say it as, as it is, rather so that there's no confusion, that no, not about sleeping or passing away. And death literacy is vital. I like to speak as simply as possible. don't like to beat mm. around the bush. I want to be understood. And I always ask if uh, things are clear. I always try to understand certain uh, cultural limitations. Uh, there could be language limitations, but I make sure that everyone is on the same page. As, so we're, are we clear that I am talking about, for example, the dying time or I am talking about death? And I think that that's really important. Now, literacy, as far as talking about all the possibilities that you know, when the body starts to uh, shut down, to, to talk about it as it is, not, not in hushed tones, well, oh, they're, mm. you know, having difficulty here. No, to just say it as it is. And that helps, I believe, to, to bring it out to the open. That's part of the death literacy, to understand that, yes, we may feel uncomfortable, there may be fear, but it's not wrong. So what do you think contributes to that need to whisper and those sorts of things? That's the, yes, the hushed tones, the, because probably, uh, you know, 100 years ago, uh, death and birth and suffering was more in the public domain, next door, in the bedroom, in the lounge room. We knew about it. But in the last, you know, mm. perhaps century, it's uh, more behind closed doors. And uh, it's in the hospital, in palliative care, in the nursing home. And perhaps that has led to the, the hushed tones or it's, we don't want to speak it out too loud because I'm not too sure. I think everyone will have a different reason for it. It certainly seems to be more hidden away 
I think, these days, rather than, as you say, a 100 years ago before hospitals, everybody died at home. And uh, But today it's just, you know, there are so many choices in terms of how and where people might die. So tell me what you think in terms of your uh, long experience what do you think is the best way to engage with people in the discussion of dying and death? And why do you think it's important to talk about it? Well, if I'm visiting someone uh, near end of life, I will just ask them what, to explain what they know about their present situation. Usually, and then I just listen. Then I will ask do you have an advanced care directive in place? It never fails to amaze me that that is still a very unknown form. And uh, so that really gets the conversations flowing when I start bringing out the, the concept and what it is, an advanced care directive. Then listening, sharing stories, if there are loved ones there, families, the stories will will start and I just let it become quite organic I'm not a a a comic but humor is very important and some people think that you know talking about end of life or you know suffering and grief and dying is really serious well I mean it is serious but it's funny that it start it Talking about it openly actually allows people to be quite candid. And there's, like in a death cafe, there's always laughter in death cafes. And usually when I see mm. uh, uh, families, there will be some laughter because they will remember certain things and, and that helps to to calm down that, oh, okay, it's not that bad. I talk about all of the the possibilities. Did you know that you can have your uh, loved one, the deceased love, at home like in Victoria for one to five days? There's a cooling plate. Uh, we can we can wash your loved one. We can do a certain ritual. We can create a hybrid of rituals depending on cultures and faiths and beliefs and you and you will be a part of this that a memorial can be wherever you want pandemic permitting of course once that word is spoken it holds less and less power over the person so what about do you th- what do you think about talking about death during life? I mean, not waiting until you're, you know, sick or you know somebody who's sick or dying or nearing end of life. What do you think of that, talking about death during I'm life? I'm probably the worst person to ask that to because I, my family, my friends, a stranger in the street, you know, I'm very open to talking about these things. And I think that much, much better to start talking about it now. What would you like? What would you like perhaps when you're unable to speak for yourself? What would you like 
near the time of your dying and to start thinking about those things when perhaps the last two weeks or when you've been given a, a terminal diagnosis and you're not expected to, to live for too long, it's so rushed. People have got so many things to organise that a lot of things get left unsaid. And then it's I've seen this too many times. So when the person has died and the funeral afterwards, they will say, I wish I had done this. Mm. I wish I had done that. I remember they said this and I, and I forgot about that. So when things are moved towards in a, in a gentle way, then people start remembering things and sharing things. And it's also giving the person at end of life some agency. So um, what about you then? So how has your view of dying and death changed as a result of your work and your experience uh, around death and end-of-life care? Well, we don't always get to uh, choose the way that we die. But in a perfect world, (laughs) I would like to receive a terminal diagnosis rather than dying suddenly because then I could get things Mm. into place. I've got three disabled Mm. dogs and they, or they've got me, I should say, and I would like to uh, get things in place for them. I have certain uh, things that I would like to be uh, said uh, during my dying time and also at the time of my death. When I was 28, I was in ICU and I died for a few minutes and my heart stopped and I had an experience that was so calm and peaceful that for myself, death holds no fear. Do you recall that experience clearly? Yes. I imagine you've had many probably quite profound experiences when being with others who are coming towards end of life and dying. Yes. One of the things that I have, so many things that I've noticed, but one of many is the when their arms are are out in front of them and their eyes are open and they're looking up a bit and they're talking. And I've seen this so many times that I am comfortable with that now. And I explain Mm. to others in the room, this is what people will sometimes do when they see something, they can experience that they are being called or perhaps they're seeing a, a loved one or a vision or there is something that is drawing them to, to it and they are comfortable with that. I've had people say things like, oh, my bags are packed, pack my bags or... Uh, my tickets, my tickets, don't lose my tickets. My 95-year-old auntie said that. So what have you learned uh, from 
all of these discussions that you've had with so many people around dying and death and and spending you know these uh, this amazing amount of time with people who are, uh, are dying what has it taught you about life uh, that <laughs> in a few sentences let me see what it's taught me about life so many things it's taught me that life is precious this mm. my my inhalation and my exhalation is precious that you are precious that the person on death row is precious that every life form is so sacred and i am so grateful that i am here to be able to see if i will be able to be of service to be of service mm. and it is isn't it like supporting people as they are coming towards their end of life is an extraordinary service to offer whether it's a family member or a friend or a stranger it is and and i am so honored because they they trust me they they let me into the most intimate thoughts and memories and i am so honored because as i said at the beginning of our talk sultum lada these are my great teachers and every person mm. that i have been with i gain and i benefit that in turn that i may be able to be of service better service to the next person that i'm with so then how do you think we can support those who are nearing death or have a life limiting illness first of all most people that i have seen have said to me i have not felt truly heard before because i don't interrupt them i don't finish their sentences i don't try and fix things i don't tell them oh you should or you shouldn't you 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 can do this i sit there and i let the pause so we have that pause between us so that pause is the time when people have the freedom have that intimate sacred space to consider things without the other person speaking you know oh um well maybe if you don't know what maybe you can think of this just sit in some silence for a while and then it becomes comfortable mm. memories of your mother or your father or your grandparents just simple little things like that that sometimes people have wanted to talk about but once again haven't been heard to mm. understand that there's not a lot of rigid rules just holding the hand of someone uh, a gentle uh, foot or hand massage to the person who may be near end of life you don't have to keep talking and things sharing stories that's that's so powerful the good the bad and the ugly mm. all of them usually when someone is looking at their mortality all of the things that were important to them fade and that, then it gets down to the most important things the most basic things of their their friends their their loved ones their the things that perhaps I I wish that I had been with that person more when I was one of the th- 
this is, a, this is a very common thing I've heard also. People who are, you know, nearing very close to end of life, they they receive this barrage of visitors and, they, and the person at end of life has said to me, why didn't they come and see me last year? Why didn't they come and see me several months ago when I was able to talk? That's so <laughs> common. They're all of a sudden, all these people are ringing up. They, they've got to say their goodbyes. They, they had opportunities. So what can they do? I suppose take anything from that, but allow, allow ourselves to be vulnerable. And, and if we don't know what to say, say that. Oh, I don't know what to say, rather than saying mm-hmm. words that are meaningless. And so then finally, uh, what about culturally? Like what do you think we can do from a broader sort of society, cultural perspective, to try and reduce the discomfort around the discussion of death. I am never going to understand all of the cultures. So the only way that I can understand what another person is comfortable with is to ask them, to ask Mm. the people around them, what would you like? That uh, one person will think this, another one will think that. So as a death doula, we are a facilitator also so we get to to create we get to to weave the the cultures and the faiths together we get to ask those questions well look thank you very much uh annie that's drawn us to the end of our time together so i really appreciate the fact that you've spent some time with me today talking about your role as a death doula Uh, So thank you again, and uh, I wish you all the very best in your continuing work. Thank you very much. In the next episode of What About Death, I speak with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, a tenured professor at Arizona State University and the founder of the Miss Foundation and Seller Care Farm in the USA. Dr. Joe is also the author of the best-selling book, Bearing the Unbearable, an exploration of the often heartbreaking path of grief. And she recently joined Oprah Winfrey and Prince Harry in their documentary series, The Me You Can't See. Dr. Jo shares her personal and professional insights and expertise on the impact of traumatic death and the heartbreaking grief that often follows. I look forward to your company then. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.